production. Hello, it's Sarah. I wanted to let you know about my three new meditations I have made especially for you. If you follow the podcast, you'll know that meditation has been a big part of my life for a long time, so a lot of care has been taken in making these meditations extremely powerful. I've created a 20-minute manifestation meditation to allow you to bring your dreams into reality. Then I've created two 10-minute meditations, one for the morning to help you start your day vitalized and with a clear mind, then an evening meditation to help you have a calm and restful sleep. You can find these three meditations on my website at the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com. Famously described by the New York Times as the poster boy of zero-waste living, Australian designer, floral artist, eco-warrior and champion of no-waste living, Joost Backer wants to turn our cities and suburbs into sustainable urban farms. He sees the world through the lens of an artist and has opened our eyes to see the inherent value of the stuff we throw out. In this hour, Joost and I discuss why food is medicine for health and longevity, the power of taking action and turning dreams into reality. I'll happily risk everything for the next idea every single time. I'm really comfortable with taking big risks. I feel so passionately about the fact that I think that 95% of the problems that humanity is faced with can be solved with existing ideas. We haven't really embraced so many things. If we actually start to think about nature and get inspired by nature, And that's why zero waste for me is a really powerful concept because through that we can actually solve most of the problems if we adopt zero waste systems for almost anything and anything goes. I'm Sarah Grimberg and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Yoast Backer is the creator of the hospitality venues Greenhouse by Yoast, Silo by Yoast, as well as Future Food Systems. He also has a new film out called Greenhouse by Yoast. At its core, this conversation is about how to live in a way that not only allows us to thrive as humans, but allows our ecosystem to do the same. My hope is that in a time where there are many challenges and uncertainties regarding resources and the state of the environment, Yoast's ideas and thinking allow you to reflect on your own life and helps you to make the choices you need to live your greatest existence. Yoast Backer, you say, I don't believe in talking about things. I'm a big believer in doing stuff. Tell us a bit about your background and your childhood. I grew up in a tiny little place called Rustenburg, which was uh, about, I don't know, maybe 50 houses in uh, North Holland. My dad farmed and did a whole lot of stuff and had a pub. And my mum was an artist, so I grew up, yeah, in a really creative household. Practical and creative. My dad is very practical and my mum is very creative. When did you fall in love with nature? I would have been then, for mm. sure, yeah. My fondest memories are that. And also the fact that you could just plant a seed and grow something. Yeah. So my uncles were all growing stuff, so I'd spent a lot of time there and I suppose getting excited about things coming into season and... Then um, 
came here as a nine-year-old. My dad wanted to move. My mum and dad both wanted to move and they had family here and loved Australia and felt that Holland was too overcrowded. There was a lot of acid rain and pollution. And really? 80s was a pretty bad time in Europe through pollution. A lot of rivers were dying. And so I think my dad just felt really that it wasn't a place that had good fresh air and yeah. good place to grow up. And then still remember the very first day driving from Tullamarine Airport to <laughs> Monbok where we still, yeah. yeah, yeah. How was it for you and your family immigrating to Australia? Uh, the first year was pretty crazy because we rented a house in Callista and I think we settled and the container arrived from Holland and it was insured from door to door and it arrived in the middle of Ash Wednesday. So no one would insure anything that was in that container and just experiencing Ash Wednesday and coming to school with kids that had their houses burnt yeah. down. And in the first four or five months in one of the hottest summers, drought. And then that first winter with our first crops planted, a massive hailstorm wiped everything mm. out. And it's like, what is this country? Yeah. How did you find being here? Did you have an accent? Was it hard to leave your friends? How did you uh, Leaving friends was the hardest thing. I couldn't yeah. speak English. Hadn't oh, even really? A, hadn't even occurred to me that I went to school on the first day, got on the school bus with Eddie Gilling, a friend of ours, who could speak Dutch. But once he went to his class, I was like, okay, this is your class. Wow. And so by Christmas, I could speak English. So we arrived in October. Mrs. Eagles, Saw that I was creative, so she said, right, I'll learn Dutch and you learn English. So she made me draw a cow, a picture of a cow, and then it would be a cow, and I'd say in Dutch, cool, and then the next day it would be... So over, yeah, six to eight weeks, I I learned English. It was pretty quick. Isn't it amazing, though, when you have people that take not just an interest in you, but they really want to help you? And, I mean, to have a teacher at that age that I'm assuming all the other kids could speak English, yet she's going, okay, I'm really going to help this child out rather than... I don't have time and I'm here to just teach a class English. Ray Yates, who just retired a few years ago, 54 years as a teacher, another unbelievable person that yeah. knew every child's name that went to that school, past and present, and was there every morning at 7 o'clock lighting the fire in the, where the teachers sit. Yeah. And people like that, isn't that what life is about? And I think that that's something that we need to change. We need to we need to design multi-generational mm. places, not we design a suburb for families. Well, the f- a family is your grandparents, your your neighbours. Yes. Your, it's important family. Yeah, and that's where we go wrong. Grandparents shouldn't have to drive an hour to get to their grandkids. Yes. That sense of community is really important and I got that in Holland. Like my, my parents mm. might be gone, but the neighbours who were in their 70s kept an eye out on us and that's where we would go if, you know, if someone fell off their bike. Yeah. The, the Dutch do it quite well, I think, that the nursing home is next to the primary school. Wow. So the grandkids will walk past on the way home or ride a bike. So they try and design it so that... That's so nice. And it, it works. So the, my Omar, she passed away a couple of years ago. She's 96. But hearing the kids come out of school and then a couple of them would... She had 13 kids, so yeah. there was always... A couple would just swing by on the way home. I mean, that made her day... And then sometimes she would know stuff that the parents would, how do you know this? Oh, well, they told me because you're so busy, you don't have time to listen. So tell me, what did your father do when he came here? He was 49. He actually wanted to go to New Zealand, but the cutoff age was 45 for New Zealand. So we ended up in Australia because he's got a brother and sister there. We came to Australia and Teslas sponsored him. So he worked for the Teslas for five years. He was one of the sort of first people to grow lilliums in Holland. Ah. So he had a lot of expertise around that. And so he did that, set that up for them. And, and then over that five-year period, 
they all kind of, my brothers and my mum, they all worked after work at night to build a business. Within six years, they were all full-time on a family farm growing, you know, freesias and elstromerias. I remember my dad digging up elstromerias. He couldn't believe that they grew wild here. They're a weed. Yeah. He dug them out along the road and split them all up and planted like an acre of them. And we ended up making so much money out of them. (laughs) It's interesting that, you know, having that background and seeing how creative and all the amazing things that you've done now and how so many times it is reflected in our youth, what we see and what we're exposed to that moulds us into being who we are. This also goes for people who have not had good upbringings. It's not a definite that that's the way that you will be when you're older, but when it is positive, you can see what an amazing effect that it does have. When did no waste become so important to you? I used waste to create my art in the early 90s. I started as a... In uh, Market Street, South Melbourne, rented a place with a guy who was selling mushrooms. (laughs) And so we built a cool room and it had mushrooms and flowers yeah. in it. And that's how I started doing, supplying restaurants in Melbourne and started with places like the River and Blakes and Blue Train. And so, yeah, I, I started using not conventional because I wasn't a conventionally trained florist. I just used whatever I could find. So old missile carriers. And so I just got this name for this guy that brings in junk and then juxtaposes it with nature and for me it was like kind of highlighting the beauty I just loved things that had a story and before I knew it I started to see in the restaurant game how much waste was being generated every restaurant just had this back alley filled with bins and rubbish and it just shocked me at the same time as I had an export business as well that I was exporting flowers to the Philippines and oh, wow. New Australian grown flowers, New Caledonia, yeah. Hong Kong. And so I was at the airport seeing all of the cauliflowers and cabbages that were being flown in. So I suppose those two things happened at the same time. And having a knowledge of what is possible, I, I believe that Holland grows enough food for 50 million people or something, that tiny yeah. little country. First of all, why are we wanting cauliflowers when they're out of season? And secondly, why are we generating so much waste in this process? Work just became more and more about that. Like you said, I'm a big believer in creating art and installation. So I remember selling a sculpture to someone and they paid like $12,000 for this sculpture. (laughs) It was completely made from waste. And my dad's like, this is crazy. But he thought it was beautiful and and so did I. Yeah. And that just made people realise that there is beauty in this stuff. And then uh, late 90s, Melbourne was absolutely booming with all the small bars, restaurants. Yeah. I had like over 100 bars and restaurants that I was doing each week Jeez. in installations. Yeah. Yeah, started getting asked to do private exhibitions. So I had my first show in 2001, then in 2002, 2000. They just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And Bruce Keeble was somebody that I worked with a lot. And I was at Flemington as well doing flowers as a florist. Yeah. So I was usually there at four o'clock in the morning or... And then I was invited as a guest. I was walking around with a friend and just going, this is like, that was waste on steroids. Yes, yeah, I was going to say it would be madness. And just had a thought, what would I do? Never in a million years thinking that I'd have an opportunity to actually realise it. That's why I'm a big believer. I think thoughts are incredibly powerful. Six weeks later, Bruce Keeble rings up and says, I've got a client, Macquarie Bank, and they want to do something completely different. So in 2006, we designed a marquee and everything was about waste. Like the floor was made from tires, the marquee, but the whole thing was about zero waste and growing food. The whole thing was covered with 5,000 mint plants. And mm. it was such a different approach to everything else. 
but that project had such a big influence on Flemington. James Reed, who's there, still there today, introduced all these, like, you can't use materials that can't be recycled anymore. You can't. Oh, wow. They're world leaders really that. at yeah. that, it, which sort of started yes. them thinking about, well, hang on, why are we making all these things that we then have to send to landfill? They've introduced systems for organic waste and that's how it started. I love realising an idea, where it goes, you don't know. What I see in you is that you put in a lot of action. You think of something, but you don't just wait around and, oh, I'll just kind of ponder that for a while. You actually go and do it. And I wonder where that came from. And my dad is the hardest worker I've ever met, yeah. know, but also really practical. You can work hard and not achieve anything. My yes. dad was very good at practically achieving a lot. So I'm, I'm quite practical and, yeah, just think that it's zero waste, not just in materiality, mm. it's zero waste in time. And I think yeah. that we spend so much time wasted and um, going back to thoughts. I mean, everything that surrounds us here is a, was a thought. Yes. You know, every single thing that's ever been designed was a thought. But I'm a big believer in as you go and try and develop something, you learn. Mm. So most great things were a, a mistake or as a result of trying to achieve something. So I love the creative journey. And I'm always open. I never have a really fixed result that I'm looking for. It's quite agile and I'm happy. And it frustrates the hell out of anybody because that's not the way the world works. If you want to build a house, well, you've got to put the planning approval in. But if you've got the frame up and you've just noticed that the light is really incredible or the wind's coming from that direction all the time, we need to be more agile in our thoughts. In, in our in our processes and that's where the that's where the juicy that's where the beauty is yes so you've had future food system and then a number of other restaurants and they've all been so amazing in their own way and I'll let you tell us a bit about future food system but when you're doing these things because a lot of the time what you're doing is like one of the first in the world or it hasn't been done a million times before where you go, I saw that works and this is a no-brainer. It obviously will work. So there is what people would perceive to be like a risk involved. I wonder where you go, I'm happy to take that risk. I will go and just see whilst a lot of other people will be like, oh, I just can't afford to do it. It's just financially if I take that risk and it doesn't work out, I don't know what I'll do. And how have you done those things and been okay with it. My wife, Jenny, would like none of these projects would probably <laughs> exist without her because I'm, I'll happily risk everything for the next idea every single time. Yeah. It, to me, it doesn't. I'm, I, I'm, I'm really comfortable with taking big risks. And I'm very lucky that Jenny, we've been together for 30 years, yeah. but she's backed those ideas. Often she'll say, no, nah, that just doesn't make sense or we, should, we can't do this. We can't afford, like the first greenhouse nearly bankrupted us, you know. I, I feel so passionately about the fact that I think that all of the problems that 95% of the problems that humanity is faced with can be solved with existing ideas and stuff that we, we haven't really embraced so many things. We're so focused on certain outcomes. And I think if we actually start to think about nature and get inspired by nature and that's why zero waste for me is a really powerful concept because through that we can actually solve most of the problems if we adopt zero waste systems for almost anything and anything goes it doesn't matter what you're thinking about whether you're talking about materials or or um what you eat we're faced with what i believe is a pandemic of nutrient deficiency dr weston a price who was a 
a dentist that's one of the founders of the American Dental Association, became really concerned in the early 1900s because jaws weren't developing properly, tooth decay, one and two teeth were affected with a tooth cavity. And so he did... He convinced the Dental Association to, to fund research trips and he did them over several years going to places where the food hadn't changed for at least a thousand years. And in summary, he re- said in 1934, America is overfed and undernourished. And he was in- incredibly impressed with the Australian Aboriginals who were the only population that had no tooth decay in a group of over 300, mm. not yeah. one. And he was obsessed with their diet and their diet contained 17 times more zinc and 15 times more magnesium and the fibre was through the roof. So we now know 100 years later, yeah, that microbiome mm. needs a really high fibre content. So what, what have we done? We've, so yeah, nutrient deficiency is a huge issue, which can be solved overnight because nutrients are currently going into the ocean and into landfill. I think we use half a million tonnes of, of synthetic fertiliser a year at the moment, to give nutrients back to the existing food system, but they come, they're made from gas. So, 1918, Fritz Haber designs a synthetic fertilizer. It's, it's bizarre to believe that Europe's population had almost doubled and, and they were running out of, you know, the bird droppings and stuff they were finding in places like Nauru oh, and Peru yeah. allowed the production of food to escalate in Europe just through importing these things that they were mining in other parts of the world. They were getting harder to find. And so what are we going to do? We're going to starve. If we go back to the way we farmed 100 years ago, there's there's twice as many people now. So Fritz Haber works out how to extract nitrogen from gas and then Bosch works out how to do it at scale. It's called the Haber-Bosch process and they both shared the Nobel Prize for it in 1918. Yeah. That meant that suddenly it was really easy to make fertiliser and it was you know, the world's population is what it is today because of that one invention. There's no doubt about it. Um, there wouldn't be 8 billion of us today if that wasn't created. But that system doesn't make manganese, boron, zinc, all the trace mm. elements and the micronutrients that we need to thrive. And so this idea and this, this knowledge really inspired me and it goes back to Holland where that's some of the most fertile land because it was reclaimed but had some of the highest tonnage of wheat and because that land was so fertile but I used to collect little pipes and little remnants of glass and in my dad's veggie patch which is across the canal and he told me well hundreds of years ago farmers would go to the cities and shovel out all the remains and feces and all the rubbish out of the streets to bring fertility back to the soil that's why there's all this glass here and I'm like wow so that idea has always been with me and it just makes no sense that in our current system we don't see that and we are constantly concerned about running out of things, but it's like, well, we're running out of things because we're not thinking about a circular system. And so Future Food System was really about showing and proving that a city like Melbourne could easily feed itself. And we did it on a very small micro scale, grew a huge array of mushrooms, uh, different types of fish and yabbies and mussels. And my goal was to try and create the complexity that Western Price had worked out the Australian Aboriginals had, which was over 450 yeah. types of food. But we didn't get that far, but I'm sure that <laughs> maybe yes. over time that will happen. But I really do believe that with a circular system, our cities can be the most biodiverse places on earth and covered with gardens and in our houses. And I think that we need to be surrounded by nature. It's a primal thing. People feel good when they're in oh, nature. Oh, absolutely. 
I realised a while ago that I really love light. I love natural light. Like, it's really important to me that wherever I am, it has a lot of natural light in it, and our house at the moment does have that. I think every human should have the right to have natural light. Oh, it just makes you so much happier. And there's something about it that just it seriously fills your soul. And I noticed because the kids' bedrooms face onto the road that we often keep the blinds closed but they've got some at the side, which no one would be able to see in. And I thought, it's been years and we have never opened these blinds. And it just made me realise that nature, light, it brings you this beautiful happiness. And I think, as you mentioned, it's something that we don't think enough about. There needs to be that place where you can go get air. It's just such a beautiful thing. And I think we all need that. If you're interested in that topic, Dr. Hollick in America is a really amazing doctor on sunlight what it does. He believes it's really important in the morning to actually look into the distance and see that sunlight. But also, it's really interesting. It's important for sleep as well, to have it first thing in the morning to be able to sleep that night. Yeah. And it just, circadian rhythm and all that stuff, earthing is another thing. You know, I designed Future Food System to have a floor that's earthed and connected to the earth's magnetic field. And so that when you're walking, you're connected to the earth's magnetic field. When you uh, I don't know. Like for me, there's so much that we don't know, but that stuff just makes complete sense to me. And I find it bizarre that our, like if you go into an old, where warehouses used to be a hundred years ago, all the roofs face south because they didn't have lights. But that's how our, our suburbs should be. You should always have access. And that's the way that I designed Future Food System was about the first morning sun, the afternoon sun, and then the the late westerly sun so you had access to all of them but also in the middle of summer when you don't want that sun it wasn't coming into the building i think it's crucial to our well-being and it's crucial to plants growing if it's good for plants it's good for us as well yeah that's so true in uh, places like siberia and estonia one of the things that they worked out about 100 years ago was their vitamin d levels were really high Mm. in winter and they couldn't understand how can they have high vitamin d levels when siberia there's no sun and what they did was pick mushrooms in autumn and they would lie them with the gills up, dry them in the sun, and then they would just get absolutely soaked with vitamin D. Really? And one mushroom was enough to provide a vitamin D for a month for a person. Mm. That's how they'd just become sponges with vitamin D. So we would pick mushrooms down below and then dry them in the sun. And then they're dry and they last forever. You'd want to use them, you just hydrate them. So that's what you would eat during that's the winter. incredible. So there's obviously been this amazing film made about Future Food System and you and it's called Greenhouse by Yoast. And I was lucky enough to visit Future Food System. I didn't even know what I was going to and I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) We got connected by a friend and you invited me down and it was amazing. It was just this cool house that just had so much richness within it. So this film does go through the journey of how that was created and all the other different bits and pieces. Now that Future Food System has finished, how do you keep the momentum of the work that you're doing? I've got too many ideas that I want to execute, not enough time in the day. I just get really excited by the opportunity that exists. We have just got so much that can be done. I'm a big believer in the carbohydrate economy, which means that we could be making alcohol to run our cars, planes, trains, trucks from all crop residue that exists. We have a coffee in the morning and the coffee bean is surrounded by a berry that is currently just wasted. I mean, that's enough to run a million cars just there. Yeah. I think we've forgotten about the potential of our natural environment to actually do so much more. Yes. And... 
every person on earth creates a kilo of organic waste today. That's at the house. Each kilo converts when it's fermented into an hour of methane. You know, it can be used for gas. So you've got almost 8 billion hours of potential energy being created in our homes. That idea hasn't been really explored. Suddenly now with this energy crisis in Europe, everyone's like looking up. Mm. You know, in a way, it's forcing humans to think, oh, hang on, maybe we need to do this and maybe we need to do that. So I just, yeah, I get really, really excited by this stuff. And I just, I look at a city today and I just think that, oh my God, imagine if it was 100% fully productive. I mean, the whole mushroom thing to me was, again, like we, we did a pair of denim jeans that couldn't be repaired anymore, let's put it that way. Yeah. Put them in a bucket, mixed them with some sawdust and coffee grounds. We put it in the oven, steam oven, and grew mushrooms out of them. And it, it was such a great... <laughs> it's unbelievable. Like, where you come up with this stuff, I have no idea. It's a gift. I, I, I think I'm just, I'm not that smart i'm just yes i'm just somebody you're so that's, into what you're doing that yeah, you know yeah. everything about jeremy it. from breve says i've got the naivety of a child and i do i've get <laughs> excited good. yeah and i want to keep that yeah and, and uh, it's that playful nature and I, I i approach my work as an artist so i'm not worried about turning things into a business that gives you a lot of freedom when you do things as an installation or as an art piece and makes it a, an easier you can experiment more Yes. And um, I'm constantly, my battle is always with regulators. And I remember getting a text message at like 10 o'clock at night. The Prime Minister's in Melbourne tomorrow and I'd love to have a coffee with you. It was Malcolm Turnbull's assistant. Yeah. I'm going, this is a joke. So the next morning I'm sitting there with Malcolm Turnbull <laughs> and he goes, you're an innovator. How can we make Australia easier for you? And I just said, all you wow. need to do is just get rid of the layers of bureaucracy because it's just killing innovation. Mm. And What sort of things? Well, everything. Everything is overregulated today. It's not getting a better outcome. And I designed a house in uh, 2014 for a couple that where the house was burnt down in 2009 yeah. fire. So I really got connected with that community and just realised that there's people that took it took them 10 years to be able to rebuild because all the red tape, all the regulations, and it's like we've got to make it easier for that to happen. And the, the discussion about you know the lack of housing, not only here in Australia but all over the world. I mean. It's so complex now to get a permit. You need to hire consultants. Why, why should anybody need to hire a bunch of consultants to get a permit for a house? You just, yeah. It shouldn't be that difficult. If we had to do that for a car, so why do we need to constantly engage an engineer or somebody to do the same thing that your neighbour is doing? And the housing outcomes are shocking. In the UK, the average house has between three and 400 different airborne chemicals that are carcinogenic in the house. Things like benzene and formaldehyde and... We know that these elements make you sick and it all comes back to, I think we've got to clean up our environment. And the, the reason why Greenhouse started was because I wanted to build a natural home for my family in Monbolk. I was never interested in designing more houses or anything like that. I just wanted to keep going as an artist. Built this straw bale house using natural materials and recycled concrete on the floor and, and um, it just got on the cover of Vogue and then suddenly it just exploded, it was on the cover of uh, Interiors Magazine in the US and... I'm not even an architect, you know. So next thing, I got asked to do a greenhouse and then we did the greenhouse in Fed Square and then suddenly I'm doing all these houses, which I love because I'm just, I've got the freedom as well yes. to not be an architect. So I can actually just do whatever I want yeah. and use whatever I want. Those projects, each time I use, I, I use them all as an opportunity. So I'm not into doing what I did in the past. I just go, right, what, what can I push yeah. this time? Boundaries, so, yeah. Yeah, like the last greenhouse I did was in 2012 when I imported these toilets from Sweden that were twin bowl toilets. 
trying to make people realize that we, there's more than enough fertilizer if we actually start harnessing it. And uh, we got permit approval and yeah. then about two weeks afterwards, I got the building surveyor called me and said, I've just read an article. What's this about harvesting urine, you know? <laughs> but yeah, in four weeks, we harvested, I think, three and a half thousand liters of urine, which is enough to fertilize a 20 hectare crop. Oh of, my God. But more, more importantly, that urine is much more complex and loved by soil microbes and not the synthetic version that we currently yeah. use. So the point was we could bring amazing fertility back to our soil if we started. And Sweden's, Sweden is by 2030, they want to be completely self-sufficient in fertilizer. Wow. That's why they're pushed. Yes. It's interesting because we were speaking before we started recording about how there's a lot more disease than there was before. There, The rates of cancer are a lot higher than they used to be. There is an obvious correlation between that and the food that we're eating and the nutrients that we're either not getting or the fertiliser that we're using to harvest food that we're eating. And how do we get that message across? I mean, how do we change our habits so that we're not creating diseases for our ageing population? Well, even young kids, the amount of yeah. cancer in children is just, it's crazy. I mean, Max Gerson, who's a big hero of mine, said in 1954, cancer, there's only two reasons cancer exists. It's um, toxicity and malnourishment. It's not more complex than that. Mm. So we're we're malnourished. It's going back to that idea that we're totally full. We're eating plenty of food, but that food is not nourishing us properly. And toxicity, we're surrounding ourselves constantly. Like every year, another couple of thousand patents are... Apply, uh, get given for new chemicals that are introduced to make paint mold resistant, to make sure that the carpet doesn't burn. Instead of using wool or a material that doesn't burn, they want to use plastic and then they need to add all this stuff, which is as soon as it, it off gases. And I'm all about like, let's just get rid of it, start again and get the nourishment up. And in things like um, vitamin K2, so one of the things that was discovered or that Western Price called the magical X factor. He said, doesn't matter whether it's the Eskimos in Alaska, the this village that he visited in, in Switzerland that was totally isolated, the Australian Aboriginals, they all have a high level of this fat-soluble vitamin called, he called it uh, the X factor. It wasn't until 1974 that Harvard University worked out that what he had discovered was vitamin K2. Mm. And K2 assimilates with vitamin D, so you need, you need sunlight for that to assimilate into your bones. But... A lot of, lot of um, like if you look at gorillas, they eat a vegetarian diet. They eat leaves all day long. But when they were starting to put them into zoos, they were dying. And their bones were breaking bones constantly. And then they realized, oh, my God, actually 15% of their total diet by weight are insects. And the insects is how they were getting their vitamin mm. K2. So I love that idea. That's the reason why we had crickets. People go, why would you put yes. crickets in the system? Because I wanted to try and create a food system that properly nourished not, didn't just satisfy you through flavor, but just nourished you properly. And so I looked at all those elements, you know, the vitamin D through the mushrooms, the, the, the yabbies, the, the fish coated all of the other foods with a microbiology, a, a biota that only exists from those fish. Mm. So even if you never ate that fish, the water was yes. impregnated with a microbiome that is ancient that we've been having for years. You know, we, we grew tiger nuts between one and a half and two and a half million years ago, that was 80% of our calorie intake, early humans, tiger nuts. Loaded with nutrients, uh, lots of fat, 
and grows like a weed and creates the most delicious milk. We were making ice cream out of it and yogurts and, and other things, but you could just, I have them with my oats in the morning. I think we need to go back to, I can't believe we call them primitive because they are actually so much smarter than what our current diets are. And I think the knowledge is still there. The journals are there. That's why I love reading old journals and especially people that spent time with indigenous cultures and observing how they went about their daily lives. And What do you feed your family? Like are there certain foods that you make sure that they have, especially because you've got yeah, I mean, youngish I'm kids? Yeah, I'm a huge fan of rolling oats. Yeah. So we've always got a 10 kilo bag of groats. So a groat is, the, is before it's rolled and they last forever and you just have a little oat roller and you roll them. Yeah, so we have rolled oats every day and I love fermentation. So one thing I try and make once a week is a fermented rice risotto. So I'll soak rice in rainwater for 24 hours. Oh, wow. And that kind of gets it, it goes a bit milky and, and gets it going. I remember at Silo, we had Flo used to work at Vue Monde and he started working for me there and he said, why are we soaking all this rice? Can't we just cook it? You know, it's taking up yeah. so much time. And I explained, look, it's when you eat rice, there's all these nutrients in there you're not absorbing. It's just leaving you. You need to ferment it. And then that night he sent me a French study that showed that having one bowl of fermented rice was equivalent to eating 10 bowls of rice. So just soaking rice for as little as eight hours released 10 times nutrients from that food. And then Margaret Zhang is a good friend of mine, says, my mum remembers that they never ate rice that wasn't fermented in China. So it's like... We just eat such a small diversity of food and there's very little connection to the seasons Mm. and I think that that's crazy. There's been all that stuff about Roundup and all the pesticides that are seeming to be carcinogenic and I wonder about the importance of like washing our fruits and vegetables and things like that. Yeah, the thing about Roundup, and most people don't understand, it's yeah. an antibiotic, first of all. Mm. That's how it works. So it kills the microbiology around the plant. And that, because like our gut flora, turn our food into food for ourselves. Yes. It's, uh, soil biology works the same way. So a plant doesn't directly take up what we feed it. It does it through the microbiology. So it works as an antibiotic, killing all that microbiology, But the craziest thing about Roundup is it's used as a desiccant. This is what people don't understand. It's not really used for killing weeds. Mm. It's used for spraying. And it was started by a guy in Scotland who grew wheat. And everyone said, the season's not long enough to grow wheat in Scotland. But he would spray it off with Roundup to kill it and dry it. So it wasn't even an invention by Monsanto. It ultimately became the biggest reason why Monsanto sells Roundup is for desiccant. And you can go onto an Australian government website today and it'll tell you how to use Roundup on barley, wheat, potatoes, canola. Everything gets sprayed with Roundup before harvesting. And that to me is insane because you can imagine a potato when it's fully developed. And I understand why farmers do it. I'm not saying that farmers are stupid for doing it. It is problematic to get rid of all the foliage that sits on top of that. Spraying it off with Roundup, it dries off and you could easily harvest the crop. If you're worried about some rain coming and the barley is not going to be ready in time, just spray it with Roundup, harvest it. And so it's in everything now. 
And it's so ubiquitous that we don't even realize. And you buy a bag of chips, you buy a, a you, you know a pack of beer. That's why I'm obsessive organic beer because really? beer is one of the most desiccated crops on earth. Mm. Barley, you know. Yeah, and that's what people don't know. They just think it's used for spraying yes. weeds in between the strawberries or something. No, it's not. It's used as a desiccant. I believe that a lot of the problems that we have faced is because of yes. the huge increase in Roundup. They've done a lot of studies where they'll speak really nicely to the flowers when they're growing and they'll see these beautiful flowers start blooming and then they'll say really rude words to flowers and treat it really badly and give it no love and that they see that these flowers don't bloom. And I mean, I'm a big believer that there is this life. Life is not just in humans and in animals. It's in everything that is around us too. And I wonder for you, what is your belief in that, the nature and its its ability to also have that consciousness that might not be as developed as ours, but there be a form of that? I totally, I mean, auric zone is what I call it. And I believe like most people put their veggie patch in the back corner because they want the garden to look good. They don't want the veggie. Yeah. So I always say to people, put it where you see it because your thoughts are energy. And not only is it a practical way to go about it because you know when something needs to be watered, but the more energy you put into something, your kids are no different or any yes. you know friendships. You know, if you, it's not just what you say, it's what you think and it's mm. how you behave and and those two things, animals are the same, you know, like how do your dogs know two days before you go on holidays that you're about to go yeah. away? It's the energy that you give off. And, and I think that goes back to those idea of that, that thoughts are so powerful. And Carol and Ellen Sports, who are good friends now, but back when one of the kids was getting married and um, they'd asked me to do the flowers. And I just had Ruby, my oldest, and I just thought, wow, the way that this man has raised, or they both have raised, but in particular, I saw that the way that he interacted with his kids. And I just said, Alan, you know, we had some sort of downtime. We were waiting for something to be delivered. So yeah. we're spending some time together. What's your secret? And he said, oh, it's not really a secret. It's just be present. Mm. Like so many people just, they think that they're present and making quality time. It's like, no, just when the, your kids are talking to you, really listen. Yes. Really have dialogue and really put energy into that and don't be don't be distracted and it that is, was a life lesson that important. I took and yeah. I've really tried to do with my kids and be be there for them and and it's not about what you give or what you buy it's just actually the energy that yes. you give and and I think that for my kids growing up I hope that they realize that anything is possible they've met some incredible people through the work that I've done I remember they came home once from school and I befriended Jack Thompson in the Sydney greenhouse he was, in Mon- he was in Melbourne. He said, can I come up? So he came up for lunch. Jack was doing these impersonations and, and I had no idea who Jack Thompson was, but they came out of school and they're sitting there. That memory stays with them forever. To have someone like him, he was doing these bird calls. And <laughs> when, when, you, when you're passionate about what you do and you get excited about what you're doing, you're real. Others. You know, it yeah. just you just become a magnet for yes. like-minded people or sometimes you, you're a magnet for people that, not for the right reason, but if you're, yes. if you're real, and it makes life so rich. It's so true. I've been singing this for a long period of time, and my girlfriends hear me bang on about it, but also in the podcast about being a person of your word is just so important, and it's something that I truly want to embody and do embody, and I believe that I think it is important to 
follow your passion like you have. And I mean, you've taken risks. There have been periods that you said that were quite frightening and things didn't go your way, but you've gotten back up and you've done these amazing things and you continue to do amazing things. And for those points where things were like, oh God, we've nearly gone bankrupt. You mentioned that before. How do you still keep on keeping on when you've had times where things may have not worked out for you? I think that having a strong family behind you, yes. Jenny and the kids and my mum and, and um, we're really close with Jenny's family as well. So just, we go broke, we go broke. We'll just build a, up ourselves. Now, for me, the most terrifying thing is to not be healthy and not be able to do the stuff. So I don't really get that interested in materialistic things as well. So it's not for me about building doing a project to build wealth or anything like that. For me, it's about trying to realise a vision or realise an idea. And that, that, that's the driving goal. And I think that if the idea has a lot of integrity, then by, by definition, you'll pull great people together. And then that's where the really exciting stuff happens. I wonder, what is the best advice that you have ever been given? I invited Alan Savory, who's a bit of a hero of mine. He was in Melbourne. And we connected and I invited him for dinner. So we put on a dinner for him and spent, he was there till about three o'clock in the morning. Very, very powerful night for me because I invited Ray Yates, who was the, the principal from Mombok Primary School, my father-in-law and uh, a couple of biodynamic farmers. And so there's about 20 of us. And uh, we had it at Silo that night and just sat around the table. And I was having a whinge. Uh, I came up with this concept over four years of a rooftop farm and we had this, found this privately owned building in Melbourne and we're all designed, had it funded and then the city of Melbourne had knocked it back that week. And I was just like, oh. And uh, complaining about politicians and governments and, and councils and he just said, name one, it's a, the whole table, name one revolution that was started by a politician in the last 500 years and no one could actually name one. And he made me realise that it's people that start revolutions. Yeah. Politicians follow. They always have and they always will. And so from that moment on, I just had all this extra time in my head to not be <laughs> whinging about yes. what governments were doing. Yeah. I just realised that, that doing a project, yeah, it does take 10 years. There's this real 7 to 10 year period where like Silo was 10 years ago. Now a lot of those zero waste systems, Silo was a zero waste restaurant that mm. opened in 2012. I was in LA recently and so many places there were going, oh yeah, your silo, this is what we're doing. And going, wow, you know, here's this little place in Melbourne that has influenced literally yeah. thousands of places around the world because we showed that it was possible. And that's much more powerful than trying to convince a body or government to allow bulk milk to be sold on tap. It just saps you of energy, whereas just doing it and putting it out there as an example is is much more powerful. And I think if a few people say no, it doesn't always have to be like, oh, they've said no, so it can't be done. There's so many people I know who either make films or do these amazing creative things and they're told no, no, no. But after a while, there's someone that does say yes and then it ends up being a bestseller, a blockbuster, an amazing whatever it is that they're doing. But it's because they had this faith, they kept on going and pushing and it, it ended up working in their favour. Yeah. What's the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? Well, Jenny reckons I just have no memory. She goes, you've done this five, you've made this mistake five times. But again, Maybe you, know, you do when you just choose not to <laughs> go there. I do make mistakes many times over, but yeah, 
I do end up usually finding a really good benefit out of making those mistakes. I mean, the lesson, my number one lesson is to just don't give up. Yes. Don't ever give up. Yeah, I think that's what we were just going on, what we were just saying. Yeah, it's so hard. So keep on keeping on. I'm getting lots of credit now, but like lots of people <laughs> told me I was an idiot and people laughed at, at me, especially in the in the early days in the yeah. restaurant scene. It's like, who's this guy that... And then when I started winning awards, it's like suddenly... Yes. People would take it seriously. It's a funny thing as well because you're not an architect. And to my point, it doesn't friggin' matter. You can be amazing at what you do regardless. I don't think you always need that degree to be able to take the next step. I think the world today is so siloed. Yeah. So you specialise in one thing that doesn't allow you to... to that's not how anything works. Yeah. Everything is a, a com- complex system, a complete system. And that's my skill I connect a building with a potential food and because I know how to grow food and making that cool. I don't know. It's, it's, I think siloing is the biggest problem that we become so specialised yes. in one thing that we don't understand the ramifications of a certain decision. Yes. I can't stand uh, monocultures. A monoculture is a big thing that I think we need to move away from. And what are we doing in the world today? We're cutting down wild forests and replacing it with monoculture forests because timber's now suddenly sustainable. What people don't realise is there's not enough, there, there just aren't enough trees on earth. Yeah. If we've got to build two and a half billion houses in the next 40 years using trees, there will not be one tree left on earth. And wow. that's, we've got to think almost like the car industry when we think about housing. When, when a car gets designed, they think about the end of life. Yes. And that's how we need to think about everything that mm. we do. I'm incredibly excited by, by, um, by the potential of all these ideas, but I'm also really nervous about how we are becoming so siloed. And I don't think that um, even some of the smartest people I know don't think holistically and holistic thinking is really Absolutely. important. Absolutely. I agree with you on that. What is your greatest hope for society today? Through social media, I know a lot of people suffer with depression and anxiety, especially I noticed with a lot of kids around, they feel that the world is is falling apart. And I just want people to realize how beautiful everything is. And it's not, you know, I suffer as well about sometimes I'll experience something or somebody will send me an email or about how part of the Amazon was cut down or whatever. There's, I understand that. But when you're thinking that way, you're not open to the beauty that surrounds you. And I think once you open your eyes to the blossoms that are coming out mm. now and the birds that are hatching and all of the crazy stuff that goes on that we're just not even aware of right in our immediate environment, that's a great start. Mm. Being connected with nature, the natural seasonal cycles, we can easily live with 8 billion people on Earth and live sustainably, we just need to think differently about stop this one-way move and start moving to a circular system. Do you do grounding practices? I pick flowers a lot. So I still, after 30 years almost, do my floral run once a week. So I've got a property with hundreds of different plants planted out. So I I do a lot of picking and I usually do that barefoot. And yeah, that's, I suppose, the thing that keeps me grounded. So if I'm really, really stressed or there's a lot going on, then I just go outside and, you know, the dogs and the goats and the cow are with me. And you forget, like this morning, I, it was early and it's just so beautiful. And all the echiums, I've got a whole bank full of echiums that are just, you know, about to flower or they're flowering and there's just this bee highway going from the beehive. And so just getting out into outside and we've got the Sherbrooke Forest on our doorstep. So beautiful. Jenny and I go for a lot of walks 
there. We actually took Zach Bush there and he was hugging up a lot of trees. <laughs> have no doubt he was. Yeah, no, it was, I don't know. Again, it's like this, one of the world's oldest, yes. it's 300 million year old forest on our doorstep and we're usually the only ones walking around there. Yeah, it's like, this is crazy. Yeah. You know? What is a life of greatness to you? Being aware of the richness that surrounds you, the people that are in your life, make sure that you appreciate them and you know that they're there, that yeah. you're there and that they are appreciated. And that's not just people, that's the animals, that's the, you know, the environment that you live in. Thank you for everything that you've done for revolutionising zero waste and doing all these incredible things. Well, come and watch the film, November. It's in cinemas in November. It's a really, really amazing film. So thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.